Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners, to Reality Check uh, Radio and Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. And it's great to have your company as usual and keep that feedback coming in at uh, 2057 via text or email at realitycheck.radio. And it's not often that uh, you come across names that you say, I've instantly got to get this person on your show or on a show. And a couple of weeks ago, I happened upon a name and I thought, hmm, looks very interesting. I sort of did a bit of a study on uh, on the internet and thought, yeah, we'll come across this guy, but I won't push it. We'll just wait a bit. And then lo and behold, uh, I came across the No Farmers, No Food by Roman uh, Belmakov from Epoch Times. And this gentleman's featured in that uh, that that documentary again. So I thought, got to get him, got to nail him now while it's hot. So it's our pleasure to have on um, RCR Greenwash today, Dr. Yarp Honekamp uh, from the Netherlands. Um, I think uh, living in or working from The Hague right now, but um, a chemist and a philosopher. Uh, gosh, your list of um, attributes is long. But the thing that I that captured me, uh, um, if I can call you Yarp, is sure. yeah, your, 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 your curious mind and the reason you, you query, uh, but is this true? But is this true? And I just, in terms of the sciences, I dare say, but engineering or anything that we're told today, it's not asked nearly enough. So where do we start? But is this true? One thing that we've highlighted um, or found highlighted on your blogs is the nitrogen story in the Netherlands, which is much talked about over here. Where can we start on that? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. The nitrogen story in the Netherlands is is, is quite old. Um, we started measuring uh, ammonia and all sorts of other nitrogen uh, emissions uh, since 1989, 1990, roughly. Uh, a lot of data around, uh, but reverting back to the, the the question, but is this true? Um, this sort of fundamental to any any academic, uh, no matter how fundamental an issue is. Uh, and this this is where chemistry. I'm a chemist by trade. Uh, famous for is going back to the old school ideas we have, and then think, hmm, is this actually true? What we're teaching the kids over the past eighty years, and I have many examples, many stories to tell about the most fundamental issues being sort of uh, um, uh, rechecked again, just for the sake of yeah, hang on a minute, we, we believe this to be true, but mm, no, we're not quite sure about this. And that's what I like about chemistry is brutally empirical. Uh, we don't think th- we don't take things for granted very easily. That's sort of the the hardcore chemist approach. Is um, yeah, not sure about that. Let's have a check. Yeah, well, we've done this eighty years ago. It doesn't matter. We still have to check it. Um, and I sort of apply that uh, that idea, which is very fundamental, I think, to academics anyway, to uh, the nitrogen issue. Just out of curiosity, basically, what is going on here? What, what is exactly moving about in the Netherlands and the rest of the world, I gather? Um, and I was sort of shocked by the... First off, I was shocked by the sloppiness of all that. Now, before I go into that in detail, uh, the first thing you have to keep in mind is we have to do agriculture somewhere in the world. Just for the yeah. sake of argument, I don't really care where you do ag- agriculture. Don't care. I do care, but just for the sake of argument, just stick to that point. Um, so, yeah, we have 9 billion people roughly in the world, 8 billion, not sure how, much, how many we have. Um, 
uh, and so we have to feed these people. That's sort of a basic idea about agriculture. Um, and that means, by definition, that you have some kind of nitrogen emission to the environment, which you don't want. You want to optimize as much as you can, but there's still some emission going on there, which you can't really, you can only do so much to prevent that. And no farmer thinks that's a great idea, just pump nitrogen into the atmosphere or in the soil and just simply lose it. That would be a very daft idea. Um, but you have to keep in mind that's sort of the collateral surroundings of agriculture. That's the way it is. And the question then, of course, is, is not how much damage does it do, if at all, but the question is, what's the trade-off? You have to put everything into perspective of a trade-off. If you do this, you get something back. For instance, food, for instance, uh, work, for instance, money. You can, you can sort of stick on every kind of parameter, but there's always a trade-off somewhere, and there are multiple trade-offs. And I do risk assessment for a living now, and what I'm totally surprised by that we, in the Netherlands and the rest of the world, we don't do a trade-off analysis. We simply state nitrogen is bad for the environment, Therefore, we should, in the Netherlands at least, we should reduce the agricultural output because of nitrogen is bad. Now, that might be true, don't get me wrong, but what I'm looking for then is, what is the trade-off analysis? What kind of analysis did you do? did you do to sort of come to that conclusion? Answer, none whatsoever. And I can state that with absolute clarity. There's no trade-off analysis being done. We simply state something, and then, of course, uh, the question is, we should do something. It's like I've I've uncovered a risk, and by uncovering the risk, I have to do something. And any risk assessor will say, no, you don't, because there is always something else going on. It's, it's the same, should I uh, go bet on, on, a, on a dice throw because I know the, the risk of or, or the benefit of, of um, throwing a six or a one? I know everything about the model die. No, you don't. I know everything about a die, but that doesn't mean I have to then bet on money, my money on throwing a die. That's that's just plain silly. But the idea is I have uncovered a risk, therefore I should tackle it. My answer is always, no, you don't. Because the next question is, what's the trade-offs we're dealing with? Mm. And, and, you know, um, you talk about the pre precautionary uh, culture. Um, we yeah. have a, a, a top. A, we we call it the precautionary principle over here, and it used to be it used to be um, usefully deployed. But now, uh, what what I'm observing, and Jasper, I hope you back me up here, is that the precautionary principle is let's stop everything and let's make it really hard uh, because we don't want to do this stuff anymore. That's about how it is. So, what I've just learned from you is um, what I used to hear was the term trade-offs. When I was first in pharma politics, we always talked about the trade-off. We never sure. talk about it now. So do any of the farming organisations, and you seem to have plenty of them in, in Holland, uh, in the Netherlands, um, do they talk about trade-offs or are they just feeling that bitten by the regulator that they are just coming out all guns blazing and saying no? Um. Well, that's that's hard to say because, uh, funny enough, I don't really talk that much to farmers and organizations, <laughs> and and that's for good reason. Also, uh, one, they sure. don't call me very often, which is fine. Secondly, um, I'm not 
I'm not a person who sort of stands uh, on on the barricades for the farmers themselves. That's not my position, and yeah. I now want to. Um, but things have changed because in the Netherlands, because usually farmers farmers are very very independent people, uh, as far as I know them well enough, and that's a great asset, and that's also a great problem. Uh, because most farmers want to do things by themselves uh, on their own terms. And that's, again, a great uh, trait. But in this particular case, it doesn't work out very well for a very simple reason is because governments in the world are well aware of how they can sort of play farmers uh, against each other. Um, that's how regulators do that. Um, um, and in others, we've learned that you have to organize uh, on a pretty high level in order to sort of counter all the policies which come out of The Hague. And that's been happening the past couple of years. Uh, and, and, and for one reason, I worked together with my, my good friend and colleague, Geisha Rotgers, which is a journalist, a very smart woman who knows exactly what's going on in this whole policy department, so to speak. Um, um, we have sort of, whenever we say something about the whole policy thing and nitrogen and and and, and, um, and agriculture, uh, people listen. Um, I have my own blog. Um, I've, I've written yep. dozens of, of um, uh, uh, peer-reviewed papers, and I got a bit tired and bored by them because who reads them anyway? Um, it's only academic CV building, and that's slightly boring. Uh, although I do like to publish stuff on my own terms in terms of being uh, brutally honest about certain subjects, but that's... That's hard to do nowadays in the peer review world, I'm afraid. So I started to do blogging just to put out my ideas. Again, um, still being trying to be precise, still trying to be uh, focused on the different topics I'm interested in. And to my utter surprise, people read it and people listen. So that works. That works out quite well, actually, surprisingly enough. Well, your your blog is prolific and um, it's easily read. And for, for the layman like me, uh, I find it fantastic. Interestingly, we do have problems with the peer review concept in New Zealand as well. Uh, we have um, some scientists from America that are well-known uh, physicists uh, who have been trying to get their, oh, we've been trying to get their documents read in New Zealand, uh, the, the William Happer and William Van Weingarten. And yeah. they talk about methane and nitrous oxide being irrelevant in terms of the scheme of things, in terms of global warming. They're, they're so minuscule that it's irrelevant. Try to get that through New Zealand uh, um, administration is quite difficult. Sure, the 2019 paper they put out was not peer-reviewed, but they've put out papers since that have been, and yet they're completely ignored by the mainstream here. And so I've come across a, another uh um, sort of peer review concept called archive, which seems to be used by. Yeah, yeah. Um, we use that as well. Uh, I use this as well. But but I think the problem is that too many scientists or too many farmers organizations try to sort of get the attention of politics. And I think that's completely beside the point. It's uninteresting for many different reasons. For one reason is the first thing you have to do is state your claims about the position you want to you want to sort of express. And whether or not people listen or read it, that's beside the point. The point, the first point is make clear what you want to say about the situation you're in and repeat that and, and bolster that position and strengthen it, but also critique it. If you think, well, uh, a couple of years ago, I thought this, mm, 
um, I think I should change my position because it's not solid enough. It has it has cracks. Um, be honest about what you do. Um, um, that's the whole idea about science is that you can change your mind for very, very good reasons. So that's another thing. And it's not trying to, to press the government or policymakers, hey, listen to me, I have great news to tell you. They don't care. And that's what I've, I've experienced. Nobody cares what I have to say if I want to bring across my message. I'll write it anyway. And to my utter surprise, people start to pay attention. Not because I'm shouting from the barricades, listen to me, I'm important. No, I'm not important, but I have something to say and I write it up. I have my own blog. I just write whatever I want. And to my utter surprise, people read it and start to take notice. And I think that's important. Don't try to convince the opponent, so to speak, because that's a, that's a useless approach because they won't be uh, um, they won't. They won't change your mind because they have their own vision of the world. Now that's part of the philosophical uh, work I've been doing as well, because uh, I tried to understand it for many years. And um, uh, once I've written my second PhD uh, in theology and philosophy about precautionary culture, um, mm -hmm. I started to realize. Then I started to understand why people won't listen, and that has a very specific history. Has nothing to do with proper science or peer review has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the utopian, uh, as Eric Vogelin says, the second reality world in which policymakers live. And they live in a different world than you and I do. And that's the, that's the rub. That's why people won't listen to you. Yeah, and that's what we've seen in the last three years, especially, you know, when COVID began and the whole nonsense began. The reason it got perpetuated for so long, it seems to me, rather than going back and saying, hey, some of these things are not making sense. They just went harder and harder and harder. And after, after a time, I realized this is not about logic anymore, because in the beginning, a few of us were talking about, hey, the science doesn't add up. Hey, this doesn't make sense. But soon you realize they don't care. The ideologues no. just don't care. Well, it's not just a question of ideologues, because that can be a, a sort of a swear word, something like that. <laughs> it's more like they live literally in a different world. And I think Eric Vogelin described this best as a second reality, as a fantasy world. But fantasy is not a derogatory term. He means it more precisely than that. It's, it's a world uh, um, policymakers envision themselves to create in the real world. The problem then, of course, is that you have to destroy the real world and get to the, in, in order to get to the fantasy world. But the result is always, as in always, that you simply, the only thing you do is you destroy the world you live in. That's it. You don't create the fantasy world. You have envisioned yourself, which he calls the second reality. He just, you just destroy everything around you. But within the vision of this better world, um, you destroy the world in the meantime. And there is nothing uh, replaced uh, at all. It's just being destroyed. And I think Vogelin in the 1940s, 30s already, in the 40s and 50s, saw that quite clearly. My big uh, hero, which is called Michael Polanyi, a very famous chemist, a very famous uh, uh, philosopher, also um, pointed this out, that if you're not connected to the real world, if you are not aware of that you can actually connect with the real world in science, for instance, then you have a major problem on your hands. And he, he actually predicted the fall of 
communist Russia based on on those ideas he had mm. way way before the Russian um, uh, um, the communist Russian world collapsed and that has to do with particularly that that there is a new world created in the minds of people which is unrelated to the world we live in that's why you see these hilarious and dangerous ideas about how to reshape agriculture has nothing to do with the real world. No. And that's why science or peer review or look at me, I'm shouting truth to you, it's all pointless. The only the only thing you can do is state your claim, show what you're made of. That's it. And if people listen or not, that's out of your hands. You don't have to try that. It's interesting. Um, you've just repeated a line that I wrote down before recording this, um, and it was from Victor Davis Hanson, and he said, academic mind always has the answers, but not in the real world. I thought he was being a bit harsh, but there's some similarity to what you've just oh, said. Uh, there's well-known philosophical work being uh, having been done on that, and it's, it's, it's precisely right. And he probably inferred to Eric Vogelin specifically, but also Michael Polanyi is another example, which are very famous. People exactly showed that problem to the world, but very few people listened. Um, and you, you can go even further back in history, talk about Gnosticism and, and the, the wisdom, um, uh, the mystery religions from way back when, uh, which Vogelin uh, um, very much talked about. But we don't have to. You can simply, um, the first thing I teach my students, don't think, look, just look around you. Just try to observe what you see. I sometimes use the, the following example. If you and I would walk to a certain forest in the Netherlands or somewhere else, and it's it's dusk. Uh, the, the the sun is slowly setting, and you see some foxes running and some deer. It's a gorgeous sight. And I'm a, I'm a pessimist, and you're an optimist. And you say, "Ah, oh, beautiful sight, great forest, all the 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 autumn colours and stuff." I would say, "No, no, no, you're wrong. I see a dying ecology." Mm. Now that's the difference. Those people who say I'm seeing a dying ecology don't really look. They just state what they think they see but they don't really look they don't really observe and that's what's been going on the past 30 40 years is this apocalyptic mindset about the end of the world which is very old by the way there's nothing new about it but it's very old and i'm a theologian as well so i'm well aware of what, where these stories come from um but one the, the first thing that starts is that don't people people do not look they just are stuck in their mindset. And for science, that's the absolute worst because they're probably the worst scientists because they are not capable of observing, of looking. No, no. And, you know, many a times uh, I've had someone say, but if it was a lie, you know, if they are lying, it would be out by now. And I often say they don't actually believe they are lying. They are of that mindset and they believe every word that comes out of your mouth. I'm also old enough to remember when science, you know, in junior school, being taught the scientific method and skepticism, and that's what the scientific method involves. Whereas now, you seem to extrapolate from a position of saying emissions are bad, farming causes emissions, farming is bad. End of story. Yeah, it's a very silly, deductive kind of reasoning, but, which um, are, is not sound at all. Mm -hmm. um, Again, it's not looking, it's not really looking at all. It's just, um, and there is another thing I, I think which is related to this is um, uh, what Ulrich Beck 
did in the 1980s. Um, and it's an interesting claim he makes, and I think he's right about that, is if you move from scarcity, scarcity in food, health, um, um, shelter, um, and all sorts of other um, uh, basic human needs, if you move away from that, and which we did, oh. we have abundance on many different levels, uh, his point was, well, the moment we leave that kind of classical scarcity behind, we have a new, we have new fears. And those fears are not short term. These fears are long term because we get older. We are healthier. Um, uh, we have enough food. We have enough shelter. We have enough money. Whatever we want, we have. But there are other risks at the horizon, which are further away. And that's radiation. He was very worried about Chernobyl, for instance. Which is not, it's, which is a, which is not wrong, but he stated also we can't trust our, uh, our, our, our senses anymore. We can't trust our eyes or is because we can't smell radiation. We can't see it and it's dangerous. We can't smell and see the chemicals from the industry and our food. So he created this, this, this fearful world, which is called, which he called, uh, das Risiko Gesellschaft, the risk culture, the risk society in which the trouble was not scarcity. The trouble was uh, the inequality in in terms of risk distribution. And and, and well, he has a point in in the sense of yes, we are beyond scarcity. But he was wrong about the idea that we have we have increased our risk environment. That's that's blatantly false. Um, and of course, the whole idea you can't trust your senses anymore ties into the to the fear of we sort of developed in ourselves about the end of um, of the world because of uh, pesticides, for instance, like Rachel Carson did in 1962, Silent Spring. Um, and of course, then we had the Club of Rome, uh, Limits to Growth, and we had this beautiful UN report um, about um, um, we have we should have a global society with a global government for which everything would be great. And these were real reports. These were, these were reports published in the 1970s, which actually uh, rung a bell with especially those who thought that agriculture was uh, sort of the worst thing that ever happened to the world. Um, so we have this whole romantic setting, this technological setting, this risk society setting uh, in which we live nowadays. And people refuse to properly look um, uh, beyond those borders of that particular world. It, and we're aware of um, those sort of um, uh, documents that came out over time, probably from, from over 100 years ago even, right through the Club of Rome to the United Nations Agendas and now the WEF um, edicts. Uh, you know, we're told in this country they're non-binding, there's nothing to see here. But they're all pervasive. They're all around us. The, the ethos that uh, emanates from those documents seems to be being used without authority in all our institutions um is that is that happening in in the netherlands i think it's happening all over the world i mean um, um don't get me wrong i'm not so much interested in all these 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 documents mm. because it's usually uh the classical utopian claptrap you see everywhere mm. which mm. which we have been writing about since the 1600s yes. i've read utopia by thomas more and every single a book like uh, Sun City by Campanella and, and Jeremy Bentham and all these these great um, um, literary people, every single document which is has this utopian structure, which is called the utopian dialectic, dystopia, utopia, 
Um, you see again in, uh, in in these documents from um, from the World Economic Forum, they're actually quite boring, um, and they're very very um, uh, structured along the same lines we've seen for the past five six hundred years about. We need to get from A to B because A is terrible and B is much better. And um, the darker you sketch A, the better B gets. And that's very old school. So if you, um, a friend of mine, a um, historian, and I um, read the Club of Rome reports, Glimmers of Growth, not as a technical paper, but as a utopian product. And it was eye-opening. It has nothing to do with science. It has to do with the better worldview of utopia versus we're going to all going to die because of the limits to growth we observe because our world model one and two and three point out we are going to destroy ourselves if we keep growing economically like we do. But that was classical utopian. And we've written a paper about 2005 about this whole precautionary idea and the limits of growth is pure unadulterated utopian um, um, uh, um, claptrap. It was it was brilliant. It changed my perspective on all these papers and documents from all these organizations. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's as good. Yeah, that if we come to more to the real world now and looking at your blog and listeners, Yap's blog is just yaphandcamp.com. You talk about the Dutch nitrogen illusion. Yes. And I've also gone through your, uh, you know, extensive output on how you think the is that how you pronounce it the Aureus modeling tool? That, Aureus, yeah, 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 yeah. That the way okay. it, it is used. So tell us a bit more because we many of our listeners would be rural farmers there would be keen to hear about yeah what's happening in the nitrogen front okay. in Holland. Okay. Um, the first thing you have to realize once we started sort of monitoring uh, nitrogen emissions from many different sources, but agriculture was one of them. Um, um, and of course, we have a large agricultural output, so. That made sense in a sort of key. Oh. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure, it makes sense. Um, there are a number of things being done. Uh, measuring um, um, actual concentration in the atmosphere, mm. which is great. It's just empirical work. Uh, with, with the uncertainties involved, obviously, but that's fine. Um, and how much nitrogen was deposited um, uh, close and far away. Now, um, keep in mind, measuring ammonia is difficult. But also, if you would really want to know how much deposited in the Netherlands uh, from the atmosphere uh, concerning ammonia, you have to have thousands and thousands of measuring points. Because ammonia reacts and, and, and it, it deposits, it goes up in the atmosphere, it does all sorts of things. Um, a friend of mine once said, as a professor, and it was a professor in Delta, um, nitrogen is interesting because you can really lie about nitrogen. And he, he, me he meant that chemically. Because nitrogen can do so many different things, especially reactive nitrogen, it's very hard to track. It's very hard to follow, and uh, that's why I said you can you can lie openly about nitrogen because very few we don't really know all the details about that. And that's yeah, that's true. Now measuring um, atmospheric measuring is hard enough as it is. Also, um, um, if you really want to measure precisely how much ammonia is and, and, and ammonium is in the atmosphere, you have to measure quite a bit and, and all, all sorts of different locations. That's impossible. Um, it's way too expensive um, beyond the capability of any country in the world to do that. Okay. Um, the next step is try to model something. Okay, we try to model transport of ammonia from sources. Makes perfect sense. Modeling is great. Uh, um, um, 
because it's a sort of a solution to a problem you can't solve via the empirical uh, route. Okay, makes sense. You model. Um, you would like to be the, for the model to be precise as much as you can. And keep in mind, modeling is always a reduction of reality. Uh, it's hard to do. Um, um, we all have weather apps on our phone, and we know that within the hour, yeah, it's pretty good. But in two weeks, forget about it. It's not going to happen. Um, so modeling has its limitations, and that's not a problem. That's okay if you sort of uh, keep that in your mind. Um, then um, uh, the no Dutch Institute of, of Environment and Health came out with a model called OPS, OPS is sort of a, 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 a model which calculates um, transports of, uh, of certain emissions from certain um, um, economic activities. Um, that model actually has been used now for the past 30 years, which is now uh, we have a shell around it called Arius. And Aries is sort of you still uses this program from the 1990s, 1980s, which is called OPS. Um, uh, which tries to calculate uh, the transport and the deposition in the end of, in this case, let's take just ammonia um, and, and try to see where everything goes and, and what's happening with ammonia from all these farms in the Netherlands. Now the problem starts because the moment we decided to make it a policy instrument, things went down the drain because... Mm -hmm. Modelers are well aware of the fact that there is a huge imprecision in modeling. And again, that's okay. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. You can optimize, you can do as much as you can, you can do the best you can, can do, but there are limitations. But the moment you think, okay, that's an interesting model, it spits out very precise numbers, that's dangerous in itself. Um, uh, let's make a policy instrument out of this. And then things went down the drain, basically. Uh, because it proved to be the case uh, um, that um, the model can't do anything even remotely precise with respect to specifically one farm emission and deposition of that particular farm emissions of ammonia on that particular uh, nature area. That's what's being done the past couple of decades in the Netherlands, that farmers are actually sort of um, uh, taken on with their ammonia emissions related to the deposition they create from within a couple of hundred yards to hundreds of miles away. Now wow. we limited that nowadays, but in the old days, it was sort of, you can calculate all the way to Moscow, basically. And of course, numbers rolled out of the machine, obviously, but of course, very few regulators understood that that's completely meaningless with these what this uh, program did. Nowadays, we've limited this this range of emissions, which makes sense up to a certain point. Um, um, uh, but we proved that the whole model doesn't work. It simply is is a useless model. I mean, useless in the sense of policymaking, not useless in the sense of can you do science with it? Yes, you can. Yep. Um, but it's a big story, so I'm not even done yet, but please interrupt. Yeah, otherwise, so that, so that means, you know, you're making real world decisions based on these models of which you know that there is, there is trouble. I mean, Holland, you've uh, had a policy, I believe, of reducing yes. your uh, speed limits from 100 miles per hour to 80 miles per hour. Well, kilometers. All, yeah. that's kilometers. two miles because that's okay. you know we don't have racetracks. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that, that's yeah. an interesting. So that's point. that's a real world 
application of this modeling, which has its limitations. So that's when the issue arises. That's a good point, because I was also a member of a of a cabinet um, advisory board uh, called the Afiscolation Maintenance and Breaking and Stickstoff. So it's an advisory board about measuring and calculating nitrogen. That was the name of the whole thing. And uh, we had lots of discussion with the RIVM, which owns the model. And we talked about this. Um, mm-hmm. Um, because I don't care about the speed limit per se. That's neither here nor there. Yep. But what I do care about is if you make a decision, if you go from 130 kilometers an hour to 100 kilometers an hour, because there is less uh, deposition of nitrogen from cars, then I would like to know how precise is that calculation in the first place? Well, it didn't make any sense at all because the, the model is simply incapable of 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 modeling that yep. and we and we discussed this um because my response would be if a minister asks you that i would kick her out of the organization because the, the simple answer would be we have no idea what that would do with respect to deposition and keep in mind it's a whole causal chain of events driving cars emissions transport deposition and change in nature that's the whole causal chain of events, which is beyond far, far, far beyond our capabilities to even model uh, in the first place. But nevertheless, this whole causal chain was sort of pinpointed with so many. Pers- yeah, if so this many happens, more. this will happen. And this happens, and this happens. Yeah. It's complete yeah. rubbish. It's complete nonsense. And if I would be the RIVM director, I would say, I'm sorry, Minister, we can't help you here. And this is far beyond our capabilities. A late but no, person. They, they decided to do the calculations and then say, okay, it's about one <laughs> more difference between the one and the other. It's completely irrelevant. It's completely nonsense. And people actually regarded this as real. And that's that's where the trouble starts. If you are incapable of sort of understanding what's going on, you think that this is a real-world result. Well, it isn't. It's just made up. It's literally almost a a bullshit a, a generator in, in this in this particular. And of course, there's a famous book by a famous philosopher, which I advise everyone to read because it's very easy to read. Harry Frankfurt, the famous philosopher, died this year, and the book is called On Bullshit, and it's a serious serious essay on lying, truth, and bullshit. And he he made a great point is that we live in a bullshit culture, which we just make stuff up out of nowhere with no regard of lying or truth. And I I always say everyone should read this essay. It's simple, 70 pages, easy to read. Go for it. <laughs> oh, we might have to do a page a week, Jasper, in the show or two pages or a chapter. Who knows? Um, <laughs> of course, of course, all, all this sort of stuff, <clears throat> if it gets to a tipping point, the tipping point, uh, you can't have any more nitrogen uh, deposition because there'll be a tipping point, or you can't have another part of a degree because there'll be a tipping point uh, for for climate catastrophe. None of these tipping points have ever, uh, as I understand it, uh, been met. So, and j- just before you answer that, um, could you clarify for me, because I'm, I'm a, not just getting this clearly, we talk about nitrous oxide nitrates in O3, and we're talking about ammonia in H3, aren't we? So N2O, NO3, and NH3. 
And NH4 plus, because ammonia, uh, at the moment, ammonia goes to the atmosphere, it reacts right. with water, right. reacts with salt, and you get NH4 plus, which is the, the, the quaternary ammonium salt of ammonia. Right. In New Zealand, I just wanted to clarify that for our listeners here, because uh, we sort of talk about nitrous oxide emissions from animals and fertilizer use, uh, but nitrates are what uh, we're sort of thinking leach through the soil profile into the water. Uh, yeah. more. So, hey, as long as we had that clarity. No, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your next train of thought, which you're on fire. So let's let's carry on a bit on this uh, on this topic. Um, what next, though? Uh, you know, you, what we're seeing in, in Ireland as well, they're talking about the, the depositions and no doubt it's happening in Belgium and, and other countries nearby. Yes. Um, the farmers are sort of being told that uh, they have to meet these new criteria or and in fact, uh, there's an attempt to buy out uh, 3,000 farms in the Netherlands, which seems one hell of a lot of farms. Um, for yeah. what end? For what end? And, and you seem to be saying to me, or to us, uh, the end game doesn't fit. The criteria to get there just doesn't, well, doesn't make sense. The, 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 the presentation, the idea is that we have to save nature because of too much nitrogen. That's a simple story. Now, Everyone knows that if you add nitrogen to an ecosystem, the ecosystem starts to grow and starts to change. And that's why your farmers use nitrogen, obviously. I mean, that's, 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 um, um, my, my fossil kids would say, yeah, that's a high duh level. Um, <laughs> now, the, 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 the simple idea is this, that if more nitrogen meets, meets, means more ecological change, and that means deterioration of ecology, and that means we have to stop that. That's a very linear causal chain of events. Mm. Now, obviously, um, um, the quality of nature can be determined in many different ways and is impacted in many different ways. For instance, in the Netherlands, let's keep, let's stick to the Netherlands because I'm, I'm the most familiar with that is that, for instance, the groundwater status is quite important in relation to eco uh, ecological quality. Because we have loads of groundwater, we sort of basically drown in the Netherlands. We have to pump out loads of water to stay dry and stuff like that. So groundwater levels are are quite important for ecological status of, of all sorts of nature areas. That's one. But there are many pressure factors you can uh, measure and you can weigh in in determining the quality of ecological systems. I think the European Commission has, has decided in their habitat regulation there are about 300 of them. Okay, whatever, it's fine. And here's the rub. In the Netherlands, we decided to um, relate ecological quality only to nitrogen deposition, which is complete BS. It's complete nonsense. Uh, um, I made a very simple, and I blogged about this, a very simple um, um, comparison between Germany and the Netherlands on the border, on the borderline. We have um, a large heather area, beautiful, purple, great. Um, and we, we looked at what the German assessment was of their own habitat, uh, heather habitat, and the Dutch. And the German said, great, great prospect, is doing great. Um, we looked at all these different pressure factors. And, and keep in mind, by the way, uh, there is no difference in, in in farm density between the Germans and the and, and the Netherlands in that particular area because it's very close by. If you walk there, you can't even see the uh, the borderline. You just walk into Germany, back into the Netherlands. Who cares? And uh, we did care about that a couple of years ago, but not anymore. <laughs> anyway, um, 
Um, then I looked at the Dutch assessment and I said, oh, it's, this heather is, is dying. So uh, exactly at the border, the Germans said, it's green, it's fantastic. And the Dutch said, no, 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 we're, this heather system is dying. Why? Well, it's a question of assessment. It's very simple. Again, we come to the fantasy world of ecologists and modelers. We only look at nitrogen deposition, which is exactly the same on the German side. The Dutch has no difference. But the Germans decided, as Germans do, to be precise about it and look at all these different pressures on, on ecosystems. Said, well, we have all these different pressure parameters, but all on the whole, this is doing great. And this is how officially, by the way, the European Commission decided to, for all countries, to do, by the way. We decided in the Netherlands to do it differently. We don't follow the, the, the Brussels rules. You can, obviously, you can go your own way. That's all fine and well. And we decided to, to uh, look only or mostly at nitrogen deposition and then state, oh, this is a dying ecosystem because it's nit too much nitrogen around. Keep in mind that too much nitrogen is models. Keep that in mind. It's models. It's not measured because measuring deposition of nitrogen, uh, NOx or ammonia, ammonium is very difficult to do. It's a very hard thing to do. And this is not trying to be easy on scientists. It is hard to do. Um, so the model world in the Netherlands said this ecosystem is dying in the German world, which is much more empirical, took all these pressure parameters into account, said, no, we're doing fine. And that's exactly the problem in a nutshell. If you only look at nitrogen, you have a tunnel vision of the world. Um, and yeah, we have a large agricultural um, um, industry, and that means lots of nitrogen emissions. That's sort of part of the package deal. And that has, that has consequences. Of course it has. I'm not saying it doesn't. But again, we're talking about trade-offs, trade and we're talking about parameters. And by the way, this is interesting. The Netherlands does deliver this so-called... Um, state of maintaining uh, ecosystem analyses. We do deliver those to Brussels. And guess what? We're doing just fine on the parameters uh, Brussels asks from us. But that's sort of not common knowledge. Nobody knows about that because these, these reports are sort of in a desk drawer somewhere in Brussels and we don't look at them. We only focus on nitrogen. And that's the story in a nutshell. Meanwhile, here uh, in New Zealand, yeah, we have, I mean, milk, milk producers controlling a third are, uh, of the international milk production via a co-op Fonterra. Now, the New Zealand milk's carbon footprint is less than a third of the world's average and close to 30% less than most of our European counterparts. Yet, we are told you need to do better. Your product won't be exported. And I come back to the point, you know, efficiency is trade-offs. It's like telling Someone like me, I am not particularly athletic. If you tell me to, you know, clean up my act, there's a lot of scope for improvement. Yet, if you go to a world-class Olympic sprinter, the one who's at the very top of his game, and tell the person, you need to maximize, it will be very hard because that person is at the very top. And to improve there is virtually at some stages impossible. But that's what we are being told to do here in New Zealand and just being wrapped and tied into all of these... Uh, not at the same time, we are being told that the same companies that are troubling, you know, that are saying that New Zealand milk is not good, good enough, are happy enough to collect uh, and transform milk into products in, say, my motherland of India. 
there's absolutely no problem. Nestle and others have no issues. But for New yeah. Zealand, they have issues. And this stupidity, well, I cannot understand. I cannot well, explain it's not it. Stupidity. It's, it's just a power play. It's, it's a simple power play. It's nothing to do with environmental degradation and stuff. It's just a simple power play. It's, again, uh, uh, trying to force the market in the direction you want. It's sort of trying to struggle for power. Um, um, and keep in mind, farmers are always at the, at the, at the wrong end of the stick historically. Mm. Go back in history uh, in France, the Netherlands, England. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. Farmers are all, I'm, I'm, I have no idea why that is. It must have been some kind of cultural or hierarchy or nobility versus um, the hoi polloi. And I don't know, but farmers are all, always at the wrong end of the stick everywhere in the world. And that is still the same today. And um, uh, now we can use science to <laughs> hit people over the head. But that's not to do with science. It's called scientism. That's the philosophy mm. of that science can do anything. It's just blunt ideology. It's nothing to do with science. And that's what I've seen in the whole nitrogen topic in the Netherlands is pure and unadulterated scientism. The classical idea that we, with science, we can do anything and measure anything and understand everything. It's complete bogus, complete nonsense. But that's what we do. We try to devise a thermostat, which is called nitrogen. Less nitrogen is more nature, and more nitrogen is less nature. That's that's the the simple causal chain of events, which has no um, um, reality worth whatsoever. But that's what we do, and that's the power play we're in. And I think the farmers, to put it bluntly, should stick to their guns. Not in not in terms of trying to convince others. Because that's pointless. It won't work. But to yeah. to be the best in their game, I mean, there's always room for improvements. There's always room for research. Absolutely. Go for it. Improve where you can. Improve. But again, there's always a trade-off, um, uh, loads of trade-offs. And, and you can do only so much in terms of research, in terms of, of investments, in terms of, of, um, of uh, liberating people to do the research. There's always limitations to what you can do. Uh, as every good chemist can tell you, uh, who has improved processes in the chemical industry, um, but there's always room to improve, but there's also a limitation to that. And in the end, food production is a reality we need uh, beyond anything else, um, apart from the, uh, the spiritual side of life, I guess. Um, but, but yeah, th there you have it. And farmers can actually do that that's what my experience in the netherlands is farmers can do that hmm. so so um it's it's interesting your take on it i mean we've spent uh 20 years in new zealand or thereabouts trying to find a way to limit uh, methane emissions from animals we think uh back of the envelope we've probably spent 300 million probably heading towards 700 million dollars to find this uh silver bullet um, it seems to be some aspiration that a lot of our scientists um, um, would like to get to and uh, see their careers off, um, having worked in that field forever. It could just be pie in the sky, who knows, but uh, that's where we are. So I see similarities with the political aspect of what you've just explained, how, how politicians take stuff up and use it to sort of put the wedge in against a certain sector of society. And that seems to be what's happening in the Netherlands with the nitrogen de depositions, sure. and it's certainly happening yeah. here with regard to greenhouse gas emissions. But what I want to go on to, uh, we've got perhaps a quarter of an hour left, uh, yeah, is 
the your your blog, the Wizard of the Built or the Climate Scenarios of the KMMI. <laughs> and I read that, and Jasper and I have talked about this. We've only been going seven months, but we've talked about this many times: the RCPs and the SSPs. Yeah. And and how overblown they are in this country, and yet they're still used. We're still using eight point five in our. Uh, yeah. Well, Jasper is a councillor, and they're still using eight point five in their council, which just beggars belief. So, how do you what have, what have you done here? What have you how do you explain the the, the SSP concept? Well, and, and we can go into detail what the SSP and the RCP concepts are, but that's that's not really interesting at all. It's again yeah. it. Again, it's a question how you look at it. It's not a question of how how exactly these things are constructed, because that's actually not quite interesting at all. It's just it's just storytelling. Now, I don't mind storytelling myself, being a theologian, so to speak, but um, um, stories in the Bible are much more hardcore reality based than the stories you find in scientific papers. Because if you read these RCP and um, the, the, these these scenarios more utopian like. Then things start to t- to click because I, I just cited one of these five stories, the the more green stories, and it's sort of buzzing with terms like equality and 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 it's all fuzzy, fuddy duddy, very very fuzzy language, and it's classically utopian language. Now, why use the RCP eight point five is a very sim- has a very simple reason. It's just sheer dystopian threat. There's nothing to do with reality again. So again, I'm I'm, I'm trying to, to to sort of show people, sort of look the other way, is that it's not about science. It's not about climate. It's about telling a story about the 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 disastrous world we live in and the great world we're moving toward. If only we could get rid of fossil fuels. Now, keep in mind, as a chemist, there are many reasons why. You would not like to use fossil fuels as we do now. And I can go on for this forever, why we are terrible at using fossil fuels as we use it now. But that's only those are chemical arguments. And I won't bother with them right now. Uh, uh, um, but that's neither here nor there. What they're trying to tell us is that this world is terrible and the world we envision as experts, I'm, I'm almost referring to this world as the expertocracy, mm-hmm. um, because experts know everything, which of course is complete BS, but that's pro- probably clear by now. They're telling a story about, it's, it's the utopian dialectic. Terrible world now, great world tomorrow, if only you listen to the experts. Now that's, what we're seeing here again with these climate scenarios, which makes no sense whatsoever, because they use, they use, um, um, they have the availability bias. Sort of, we have this scenario and that scenario. This is, of course, a very high scenario. This is a very low scenario. Somewhere in the middle, something's going to happen. That's not true. That's sheer availability bias, because the world might develop in a completely different direction, which you have not foreseen. Well, guess what? That's always about the future. You always don't foresee stuff. Again, duh. That's what. That's how the world works. Again, it's a fantasy land, um, but it's a. But the fantasy land has consequences. Ideas have consequences. They are not. Language is not innocent. I always say say to mm-hmm. my students, language is not innocent, and these scenarios are not innocent BS. They have real world consequences. World consequences. Absolutely, yep. And uh, for listeners, if someone is unfamiliar, we were talking about RCPs. These are representative 
concentration pathways, which essentially are models about how much we are going to heat heat up the earth by our very existence. And RCP 8.5 is the most catastrophic doomsday scenario, referring to something like four to point, four to five degrees of temperature increase. Now, Yap, you were talking about, you know, storytelling and all. And I just found it a sheer coincidence. Our universities here in New Zealand have recently, many of them have begun a degree in science communication. If I may, I'll read out a bit of the blurb from one of these universities, Otago University, about what this course will have. It says, for selling this course to students, a master's in, uh, mm -hmm. they call it science communication. They say, but storytelling, storytelling at the core of all science, our focus continues to be creative nonfiction science and natural history writing, but also covers a broad range of practice and applications over multimedia, filmmaking, podcasts, and exhibitions. I think they should have written creative fiction instead of creative nonfiction. But I am, again, showing my age here, but growing up, I never heard of these degrees or these qualifications of science communication. Science degree was a science degree, pure and simple. You didn't need storytelling, but these days you seem to. Well, I don't mind storytelling per se, because stories can actually tell mm. real world truths. Mm. Absolutely. And... For instance, what I try to do in my classes in chemistry, I try to portray uh, difficult technical subjects in more uh, in, in language. They sort of where they sort of meet up with each other. And if you move on through the chemistry course, people are more familiar with the jargon we chemists use. Mm. Uh, the first sense is try to sort of build a world for them where they can sort of inhabit that world without being scared off by all the jargon. So in that sense, I don't mind that very much. Um, but of course, storytelling as sheer fantasy, as sheer, sheer imagination, um, um, which again, Vogelin called the second reality. Now, that's a different matter because you fantasize. Yeah. And of course, all these scenarios the uh, economy um, uh, uses uh, for their climate scenarios are literally fantasy lands. They don't exist and they probably never will. Um, but the sort of that's the, the problem always in any in any uh, field. Worst case scenarios don't tell us nothing about the world itself. Worst case scenarios seem very a safe route to approach a problem, but of course the problem then of course is that it doesn't give you any kind of useful real world information out about the situation you try to research. Let me give you a very simple example. Uh, this has been a, a going on in toxicology for the longest time. Does it make sense to feed rats high doses of a certain chemical in order to extract information about our own exposure, which is a million times lower than that? Many scientists thought in the old days, yeah, it's probably useful. Then at least we know that the liver goes out first and then the kidneys. But nowadays we say, no, doesn't make much sense because the whole physiological processes of getting rid of high levels of chemicals is completely different than the physiology of low level exposure. So there is no connect between the high dose and the low dose in terms of how organisms respond. So by doing the worst case exposure to test animals doesn't give you any useful information. information. At least it's very unlikely that you get very useful information about these worst case scenarios. Now in that world we live in, we created, we, we have spent trillions of dollars on worst case scenario research, which goes nowhere because it doesn't tell you anything about the real world. And I think people should realize that, that 
these scenario, climate scenarios and all the other scenarios are worst case scenarios which are not connected to the real world. And that's the, that's where we stand nowadays. We ha we have dragged ourselves into a worst case scenario world where no one lives. By the way, no one is there except for the expertocracy. They look around. Oh, this is absolutely dreadful. We have to do something. So that's where we are right now. It, it's interesting because um, I think uh, of your your country and your coastline. Is it called Needle John? I'm not sure how to say it. The 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 big um, sort of, uh, it's not a dike, uh, what do you call it across the causeway with the electricity generation stopping the tide from coming in and out of yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. that, that isthmus. Um, that was done, uh, built long before uh, climate change politics sure. hit, the, hit the world. And so the money was spent on something useful. Now we're spending a lot of money um, chasing um, some sort of, uh, fairy tale uh and not doing the engineering that is required to uh to adapt to a changing world it doesn't matter whether it's a climate that's what change we do. or anything that's what we've, that's we what we've done for the past yeah past so yeah. ten thousand years we adapt to things exactly that's what we do yeah and we we didn't need all the uh people in suits telling us how to do it uh generally but nope. it's interesting going back to your your end of your blog on the rcps and the 8.5 and and this <laughs> the wizard of oz connection you say pay no attention to the man behind the curtain that's yeah. what the your met office wants to make us believe in a magical predictions that the made behind the hermetically sealed curtain of the expertocracy but it's smoke and mirrors yeah. magic and deception contempt and power we've seen it in the nitrogen story that script us with this model dictatorial uh uh for the for more than 30 years the climate story is no different and yeah. so i don't know um yeah i can't believe an hour's gone by. You've captivated uh, the attention of myself and Jaspreet, and you've brought a unique perspective. And I am so grateful we found you because it is a different perspective than we've had. And it's so uh, refreshing. Well, refreshing. Yes, refreshing. And I, I think your students uh, are so lucky to have someone like you. <laughs> I hope you indoctrinate them well because boy, we need people. No, uh, no, no, with that's exactly the point. I, I always I, say, I, 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 know, no, I know, whenever they have to write a paper or something, yeah. say, don't have to humor me. You can take any position you like. <laughs> the only thing I'm asking you is make a good case for it. Absolutely. And, and so I'm never grading students on completely disagreeing with them, but that would be absolutely silly. I mm. will grade them badly if they just blurt out something they believe without any kind of groundwork being done in terms of evidence. Right. That's awesome. what I do. Deep critical no. thinking. So, so um, look, we'll, we'll we'll draw this to a close. Um, we'd yeah. love to have you back on. We want to know how the Dutch sure. um, uh, uh, get through the next few years. I mean, you've got some political turmoil there. We've yeah, just had we an election have, here. Yeah. Um, we have elections in a couple of weeks, and that's going to be interesting. Uh, right. But, of course, the election uh, issue is much larger than this. We didn't talk mm. about critical loads and other stuff, and there's so much more to this story than just the model. So, right. uh, so yeah, so, but maybe for another time we, we can do that. Well, that would be fantastic. Look, uh, so in the meantime, thank you very much for coming on to our Greenwash Show yep. on Reality Check Radio. You're certainly as jasper said a um a new perspective and we're thankful for you giving it to us today thanks very much okay thank you have a good have a great night thanks bye-bye bye-bye bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye.
Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.